This episode of the Political Worldview podcast is funded by the University of Birmingham's Alumni Impact Fund. For more information on this and other projects, please visit birmingham.ac.uk forward slash alumni. Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, November 14th, 2017, the Trump One Year On edition. I am Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. And we're live, really, in front of an audience of real live human beings at the Muirhead Tower at the University of Birmingham. Can we please get a round of applause to prove that you really exist? No special effects required. Thank you very much for, for coming along. My co-hosts, as usual, Kristala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. How are you doing, Kristala? La, la, la. Are you live? I'm live. I'm live and happy. It's lovely to see so many people here. It is interesting to have a panel set up for our, for our pod. Usually we pod in a square. I was going to say circle, but that's a lie. It's a square formation, so this mm-hmm. is a change. Yeah, there's I'm like well. corners and uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, a general absence of expectant watching faces. It's a very different environment. And uh, my other regular guest from those corners, Scott Lucas, who's a professor of international politics and editor of the news and commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? I'm great, and I'm starting, as I mean to go on, by taking the knee in honor of this great occasion. <laughs> which, uh, which particular social injustice are you protesting at this moment? I'm sure I'll probably give you about 25 or 30 by the end of this podcast, so just keep count. Okay. Leading with a general electoral injustice. Well, Colin Kaepernick made GQ Man of the Year, apparently, so maybe you're, uh, maybe you're in line for that if your protest goes well. I don't think Roy Moore, uh, the U.S. Senate candidate for the Republican Party, is going to be GQ's Man of the Year anytime soon. But <laughs> listeners, listeners, um, they are not all we have for you today because a special episode means special guests imported for your listening pleasure uh, from the provinces both to the east and the west. We have for you Dr. Cloda Harrington, a senior lecturer in politics at De Montfort University and a convener, the convener, a convener of the American Politics Group of the UK's Political Studies Association. Is it just you or is it it's your, just is it your like, unilateral empire? I, yes, I'm the queen. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much for coming to us today. You're representing the East for these, for, for these purposes. And also, Dr. <laughs> Luca Trenta, a lecturer in international relations from Swansea University, yes. who's coming to us from Wales and also more distantly from Italy. Yes, from Italy as well. And I'm glad we started the Alabama drinking game of things we shouldn't say about Alabama. So very happy about that. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, uh, you know, got to keep up with the news. And if they will keep doing things that horrify the conscience and the, uh, the political action committees the Republican Party, we will have to keep remarking upon it. Today, we devote a whole episode uh, to one big special topic for one big special boy, uh, Donald Trump. It was just over one year ago that he defeated Hillary Clinton to become president-elect of the United States. He was inaugurated in January, so we've now had something approaching 10 months of him in office. Uh, We're going to ask some of the big questions that it seems appropriate to, to ask ourselves at this, uh, at this juncture. What do we know now that we didn't know then? What has he done in office that surprised or maybe confirmed our expectations? And with his trajectory in office now more set than perhaps it was at the outset, how do we foresee this story ending? So, 
probably best to get some of those who come a ways to visit us <laughs> on board the opinions train first of all. I don't know uh, how you guys spent November the 8th, 2016, but I spent it basically uh, staying up all night with a sense of just nausea and dread and horror at the unknown prospects of what was about to happen washing over me as the election result came in because I genuinely had given very little thought to what would actually be entailed in Donald Trump not just being a like terrible toxic uh, political presence in the electoral campaign but actually being the president of the United States so very unexpected uh, result with a lot of uncertainty over what it was going to mean. Now that we've had a lot of time to sit with it and a lot of water's gone under the bridge, Cloda, what, what have you been surprised by or what have you been confirmed in your opinions by about what's actually happened in the year since that rocking event? Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. So thank you so much for the invitation, Adam, and thank you everyone for coming. I guess, yeah, reflecting back over the past year, it does seem like a very long time ago now. That night I did go to bed finally at two in the morning and I had to get up at four to do a, a thing for the BBC. So when I went to bed, it was still kind of up for grabs. And I remember I put my phone on at four, I turned it back on and I, the, the, the screen refreshed with the little map of the Electoral College. And I genuinely, genuinely thought that I was still dreaming and I pinched my arm so hard to see if I was awake that afterwards I had broken the skin. So it was like, you know, just trying to comprehend the reality and it was, it was a big shock. So there was that to sort of comprehend and, and, and move on from. And if I think now, you know, however many months on we are, I think the biggest surprise to me, and maybe I was naive to hope that it would be so, but, you know, I back when it was still sort of campaign time, I remember speaking to people in Washington and one guy in particular said, who, who was sort of very, very politically neutral, but he said, we're just watching and waiting. We're just hoping that the campaign was a big sort of hyperbole-laden performance and there's pantomime, there was villains, there was good and bad and in and out and whatever. And when it comes to actually running the country, that he will become somber and serious and presidential and there will be a change and I said really do you think so and he said no I hope so <laughs> so that's where we were and I, I thought okay well I, I'll hold on to that you know I, I can I can go with that and thinking now it's like I, I would say based on just observing events over the past 10 months or whatever it is that he hasn't left campaign mode. And I think that's the thing that has struck me the most. I mean, rather he's having a, a rally in Ohio or he's on Twitter or he's meeting with whoever he's meeting. He is still very much in that campaign headspace. And I don't think he has embraced the presidency personally. I don't think that he has in, in terms of how he views his position and his understanding of the office that requirement for, for leadership and decorum and you know the fact that you're filling the shoes of previous greats that you you need to take it seriously mm. and I don't know how seriously he's well, taking I it. Mean, I mean it seems like that's when he's at his happiest right like if he's in front of a rally like saying crazy stuff or like riffing on some 15 minute tirade about someone or something or if he's you know binging on confectionery and tweeting while watching TV in like his den or whatever he does he's happy with that whereas if you like stick him at a summit or like to do a set piece speech or like something archetypally government not 
uh, not politics in the usual sense. He just hates it. Like, he looks like he wants to die when you put him in those kinds of situations. But I also think it's that he doesn't have the capacity. He genuinely does not have the capacity to do that. So it's, it's not only that this is where he's most comfortable. It's that he, I don't believe that he knows how to do anything, anything other than be in campaign mode or be in television mode. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that among those who were surprised by the result this time last year, Donald Trump was probably pretty high up. I mean, like on one level, he thinks he's great at everything and he's going to win whatever he does. But on like a deeper, like truly internalize and know it level, the idea that he would have to be the president of the United States was probably pretty far from his from his kind of calculations. Luca, what a what uh, has blown your mind or well, uh, <laughs> failed to do so? Over the first last of all, thank day. you for having me. I mean, I really struggled to answer that question. What has surprised you? Because there is, I have down here a very long list of things that actually have not surprised me. Trump is incompetent, and he had already shown to be incompetent during the campaign. He has a disrespect for norms of multiple kinds. And he had already shown this during the campaign. He has a sort of pension for authoritarian leaders and dictators all over the world. He's probably a white nationalist or something that gets really close to being a white nationalist. So this He's definitely a nationalist and he really likes white people. Yeah. Uh, whether or not the, the, the two unify into an actual racist ideology seems to be a gray space. But like, you know, yeah. Like you talk to enough rallies full of only white people yeah. about your nationalism for long enough and you probably end up in a gray in, area. In that camp, yeah. If there is one thing that has surprised me a bit is the complete acceptance by the Republican Party of everything that Trump is just in order to get any measure whatsoever through or at least try to, whether it is repealing and actually not replacing, but actually also not repealing Obamacare or whether it is now the tax cut. The GOP leadership seems to have accepted this Faustian bargain in which we take all the crazy as long as we get those one or two priorities that have been on our agenda for ages. I think that has been in domestic politics the main surprise. And so you were expecting that they would kick back more if he was if he continued to behave this badly? Perhaps not kick back more, but at least not completely accept or completely ignore everything that is going on. There has always been sort of search for this, what is that Trump might do that is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And in my view, we have already reached that stage in plenty of cases, but apparently we haven't, according to Trump base and to the Republican Party. Yeah, and, and we keep going through these phases of it. Like, you know, during the campaign, you had the Billy Bush campaign tape, yeah. uh, the grab him by the yada yada. And endorsements were running away from him and Republicans were condemning him. And they were like, now this is finally too much. You can't possibly be elected. And then once it blew over, the yeah. same people were like coming back and changing their mind. Likewise, when there was the, the Charlottesville yeah. thing during the presidency where he appeared to... Uh, engage in moral equivalency between people protesting against Nazis and the Nazis themselves who drove a car through the crowd. There, there was a moment when it seemed, oh, his, his base is going to collapse, he's being condemned by all these leaders, and then you give it a few days and like the, the news agenda moves on and suddenly all of the big brave posers who were supposedly finally at the end of their moral tether uh, are basically back on Monday morning doing everything they well, want. I, mean, they were doing I think before. that this to an extent comes from Trump complete lack of interest or willingness to learn how to set the policy agenda. So you'll have the complete vacuum there that 
GOP leadership has come in, and now they are the one setting the agenda to a president that is uninterested in that, and it simply tweets about issues every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, you would have thought if there was one thing you could say that would have been a relatively easy, quickly accomplished, and probably on balance likely symbol of his shifting from the campaign to a more normal presidential mode, it would have been shutting down that Twitter account and beginning to communicate mm. through the normal channels. But, like, apparently he just will not be told. I mean, or at no least to use it responsibly. You know, there are two accounts. That there's the POTUS account, which has about 20 million. It's the one that he inherited from Obama, and the sort of slate is wiped clean on, on, on transition day. Um, and then there's the Donald Trump Twitter account. And so POTUS has 20 million, give or take. Donald Trump has 45 million followers. And I think that in itself is interesting just to see that, you know, the Trump brand, that personal Trump brand is so important. It's like, you know, of the people that, that supported him, you know, he's their guy in the White House. The POTUS one is just, I wouldn't say it's an irrelevance, you know, 20 million followers is still very substantial. Yeah. Even but if you deduct the 10 million Russian bots, that's yeah. still yeah. Yeah. about 10 million <laughs> exactly. more on It's the, still substantial, uh, isn't yeah. it? So I think that, that that's just an interesting thought that, you know, he, he trumps POTUS, if you know what I mean, in terms mm. of uh, attraction. In and, so and many ways. Yes, he will, yes. Not be, he will not be contained by the yeah. office. It's, not, it's insufficient exactly. uh, to tame him. Uh, Scott, what have you been surprised or not by? Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you, I wasn't surprised in that I thought on November 8th in a hotel in Guilford, having been up 37 hours on the trot and waiting for a, an appearance on media that never happened because we were watching him accept instead, I thought, that car's going to wreck. You're going to wreck that car. That, car, that car's going to wreck, folks. You know that. And so help me. That, that, it's like day after day, there's another car wreck to watch, usually starting with something he's tweeted. And then through it, but beyond not being surprised about, and I got to be honest here, the fact is the man is dysfunctional, and um, I won't actually vent at this point. We'll save it for later on the podcast. I have been surprised by the scale and a double-edged surprise about what has happened on a different couple different levels. One is I'm I'm surprised by the scale of what has occurred and what hasn't occurred in terms of actual legislation and change. I've been surprised at the scale of how much has just been ripped up. And interesting enough, by using the device of the executive order. And here, you're not just talking about Trump. You're talking about some really hard right advisors. Steve Bannon at the outset as chief strategist. Uh, the creature who is known as Stephen Miller, who's just this absolute unknown in U.S. politics. Is that like the artist formerly known as Prince, the yeah, creature exactly. who is known as Stephen Miller? And the fact is, is that they, along with agency heads who have been not just complicit but willing, you have an environmental protection agency that is ripping up environmental protections. You have a Department of Education that is taking apart educational safety nets. Uh, you have a Health and Human Services Department, which, of course, tried relatively unsuccessfully to uh, repeal Obamacare in connection with Congress, but now is sabotaging it through whatever means can take. And so just that power of the executive to be able to say, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 years of regulations, and that's it. We're just tearing it all apart, in part because Trump hates anything Obama has done, but in wider part because there is this agenda, which ranges from denial of global warming to really denial that there's any type of social responsibility. On the other hand, I'm also surprised about what has not happened, and here start a bit of a debate amongst the panel because it differ a little bit from Luke on this, and that is 
despite the Republicans being in a codependent relationship with him, zero, zero pieces of major legislation since January. And in an America which the marker is, if you're going to be president, it's going to happen in the first year. You know, no repeal of Obamacare, no budget so far. So we're on emergency budgets with the latest one expiring in December. No tax cut at the moment, and it appears to be in trouble. You know, just nothing. There's not a single major bill that he can refer to. And at the same time, what I'm surprised is while you have that unusual then approach to actually governing the country, you have this polarization, which in itself doesn't surprise me because it's been there for decades, but just the scale of the polarization with, um, on the one hand, the hard right, and whether you tie it in with white nationalist, white supremacist, but to the point now where Steve Bannon, who is now outside the White House, and Breitbart, as part of this new media landscape, are waging war on the Republican Party. I mean, absolutely waging civil war on it. And the fact is, we don't know quite how far that's going to go in remaking U.S. politics, where nothing is sacred in terms of who the foes are. There are no longer two camps. Um, and We'll see how far that goes as we get into 2018. On the other hand, what has surprised me is in this polarized America, bit of hope, folks, has been actually the scale of maybe things shouldn't be this way. And I can remember the first time I thought this. So instead of marking November 8th, on January the 21st, which was the day after the largest crowd in inauguration history, which wasn't actually the largest crowd in inauguration history, uh, you know, alternative facts, as Kellyanne Conway puts it, you had the Women's March, which was actually a march about a whole variety of issues beyond that. And the scale of that was a marker. Look, we really don't want to go this way. We're not sure how we're going to vote going this way. We don't want to. And then, of course, you know, we record this, what, uh, just a week after what are normally very quiet off-year elections. But because of the crisis we're now in, everyone pays attention. And really, at local and state level, uh, just an expression across from healthcare, LGBT issues, environmental issues, and then just really, to be honest with you, a call for decency and tolerance. And, and I think that's something that you won't see measured specifically in any poll, and you won't see Trump refer to it as fake news. But it is that question of that grassroots and community activism and where it goes next. Cristala, you're last up. Yeah, being last sucks, I have to say. So yeah, have, has everyone stolen your yeah, thunder? Yeah, and specifically, Scott stole my homework, man. I'm, I'm not, I'm not happy, Sorry. Scott. Do you mean literally? Did yeah. you like reach across and take the the, the sheet? My of notes? notes, yeah. As people can see in the front here, there, there aren't many notes on my page, so I can't claim that one. Well, maybe it's blank because he took the, the already completed <laughs> sheet of Voldemort uh, style point. straight into his mind. Um, no, I wanted to follow on about particularly the kind of positive change that's been galvanised. And I think that there's actually a long way to go. One of the intrinsic problems both in the US and globally that we're facing is this problem of polarisation and speaking across sides and lis actually listening, bridging those divides. But I think the speed with which that opposition was galvanised was really remarkable and I didn't expect that. And also those entertaining rogue NASA, rogue EPA, rogue EPA, rogue was it Parks and Services? Yeah. Remember, like all of the of the autonomous, semi-autonomous, and fully governmental agencies went rogue um, and continue to post really excellent stuff and do really excellent work in opposition 
in addition to more grassroots, traditionally grassroots activists. So I think yeah. that the, kind of the valorization space. of bureaucratic sabotage yes. has become uh, <laughs> like a phenomenon of this period. Which is beautiful, right? There's something really, really interesting about that. I think part of why I was surprised he was elected even was that, and I think I'm, I'm channeling Ezra Klein a little bit here, that it wasn't a surprise to me that there would be a like lurch to the other party like at a certain cycle. It wasn't even a surprise that there might be a lurch back towards like cultural conservatism or reaction or you know the values that Obama was not as part of the normal routine of things. That's kind of how, how politics works. But I always assumed that there was some kind of flaw, some flaw of the characteristics of the person that they had to have in order to just clear a basic... Uh, threshold to be elected and even if it was your time and even if you had the nomination and even if the mood of the country was kind of with you if you didn't meet those like clear that basic threshold sort of indicative performance level yeah like you you couldn't <laughs> get elected and I thought I, I, I genuinely thought Donald Trump was in that category and what I feel like the election revealed to, to me at least was just there is no there is no flaw at all if you can get on the ballot and you're famous enough and the like mood blows the right way anyone literally anyone it seems regardless of their lack of temperament or knowledge or qualification or fitness can be the president of the united states oh, and white and male yeah, yes and i think that's important i mean i think one of the best thinkers on this is actually tanasi coates yeah. who talks about this not being just anyone but being a very purposeful hmm. reaction to the to the former president to a black or mixed race former president who had particular leaning so it wasn't it's not just anyone yeah. on the ballot yeah i guess that yeah i guess i should correct it i suppose to say that like you have to be a, a representative of those like the, of the relevant forces or at least tap into them despite you know having a pretty poor set of characteristics and track record to be a kind of populist demagogue but you can be personally wholly unfit for the job and that isn't disqualifying even if you've talked openly about sexual assault even if you manifestly know nothing about any of the relevant policy issues even if your incapacity to remain calm and consistent for like a 30 second period um, uh, a highly important public stage even if none of that is possible you can still get in there and i thought you know that was with that as my starting point then i've been consistently surprised by just the we've talked about the failure to correct like he has not in any way been able to conceal the fact that he is completely uninformed totally disengaged from the work of actually doing the job he just speaks ignorantly and lazily about all of the topics that that that, that are in his portfolio while failing mostly to to like be a force for for, for actual progress even in the direction of the things that that he supports and uh, and that leads me to wonder Like, are we lucky or are we unlucky here? In the sense that he clearly picked a lock to unleash a bunch of terrifying reactionary forces, cut loose in many ways from fact, so consumed by anger and reaction and bitterness that they were like prepared to empower someone uh, with deeply authoritarian tendencies. But he is so lazy and disengaged and incompetent that in many ways he hasn't been able to channel channel or make use of those forces in any kind of productive sort of way so like on the one hand it's it's like a terrible indictment that someone who has such a lack of 
ability to get purchase as a governor of a country is is electable. On the other hand, it's kind of lucky because someone with those political forces behind him who was competent and level-headed and operationally capable could have done way more and probably possibly way worse. So it's like... It's, it's both at once. But I mean, this is a big concern for the future of American politics, in a sense, because what if we get a Trump 2.0, someone with the same moral values of Trump and the racial inclinations and so on, but also the competence to follow through mm. on those? I mean, do you take evil or incompetent evil? I would choose incompetent evil any day. And this is part of the concern about a possible Pence presidency. Yeah, mm. yeah 100%. Because Pence is evil for lack of a better term, and also strike me as someone who is incredible. Well, it's not a very high bar, but incredibly more competent than the current president. Right, he's able to keep yeah. his mouth shut and show up to work. Well, and he's like also... I know he understands. He understands the business of yeah. government. Yeah. He's got vast experience as a governor of Indiana. So, I mean, he is very much a different beast. And that Faustian deal that you mentioned earlier of conservatives and the religious right signing up to Donald Trump, even if it was a question of holding their nose because they'd rather have had Perry or Cruz or whoever, they are mindful that, I mean, there's a couple of things. One, he may, may not stay the course. I mean, I think impeachment is probably a liberal fantasy, but there might be other ways which his presidency could unravel. Yeah, I mean, and he looks or, pretty rough, for one thing. He's no advertisement for, like, personal health. Uh, well, there's that. Yeah, I mean, I, th there, are, there are a number of ways in which this may not be seen through mm -hmm. to its proper end. And obviously, President Pence would be enormously pleasing for, for vast amounts of people. But I think there's a couple of issues. That, you know, you said a while ago about the... The, it's the kind of natural tendency of the country to, to, to move away from the ideology of the, the, the party in power. Like if you think when, when Obama came in, you had the Tea Party movement, you know, 10 minutes later, literally. Obama's in, he wins in November, the Tea Party are up and running by the spring. So there's that. There's a huge backlash to this liberal, progressive, you know, African-American and all that he symbolizes and, and signifies. Now you have Trump and all that he stands for. And you have this, I mean, the elections this year are a good measure of the, the moving away on, on, on many levels, not on every level, but, but certainly on some. And I think there's a couple of things. It's like he has, as, as Coates said, you know, he's presenting as the first white president, as in they were all white before, but suddenly Trump's whiteness really matters because it's the pendulum swinging back in a very meaningful way away from you know that kind of post-racial there was there was a point where it seemed okay America's post-racial people were actually saying that and putting a sentence or a full stop at the end of the sentence it's like we're, we're done we're good we've moved on and then it's like oh no oh no 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 that was just a clause in a bigger sentence, you know, and now we're post-post-racial yeah. and we're back to almost business as usual, but with this, this harking back to the, the far past and a, a much more kind of worrying elements of the past. And the other thing I think, I'm so conscious of this because, as I said to the other speakers earlier, I've just spent a week in the company of a very conservative Republican uh, former congressman who's very pro-Trump, and the thing that he said over and over again in our conversations was, that Donald Trump supporters were sick and tired of smarty-pants academics, that's the term he used over and over, telling them what to think, how to think, and dissing the guy that they thought should be in charge. So I just, I'm so conscious of we're doing the thing, you know, and yeah. it's not to, to, to support or promote or excuse Trump in any way, but I think it's, it's so important to try and understand that there are a lot of Trump supporters who are not, you know, on that really unpleasant end of the spectrum in terms of racism and sexism and all that stuff. There are people who were just deeply and profoundly disenfranchised and nobody else was speaking to them and for them. Hillary was just too, 
you know, urban, New York, global, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. And he, he was the guy that sounded like he had ears and was listening. So it's, it's not to defend him in any way, but it's just to be mindful that there are people who are decent and who felt they had no other choice. And that's why I think it's really quite possible that he could get in again because he continues to sound like he's hearing them and no one else is. I mean, I'd be interested to hear what the audience thinks about this because I've wrestled with this <laughs> as the son of diehard Trump supporters uh, since November. And I must add, by the way, something we haven't talked about in terms of the election beyond, not just diehard Trump supporters, Hillary haters. I mean, a lot of what turned last year was just the anti-Clinton move. And so I recognize at one level, you know, beyond friends and relatives I know who voted Trump, that, you know, there are people who are feeling economic pain or perceived economic pain. You know, and you look at the swing states like in Michigan and Pennsylvania, um, Wisconsin, and, and you realize that uh, there were people who felt uncertain about how Obamacare was going to work out and whether they're covered on health care. You know, there's, America has never been a certain country, even when it was riding high. We've always lived on crisis, you know, since 45. And it had hit home with the recession and beyond. But at the same time, Claude, I've got to wonder about this, and that is, you know, there for decades now, there have been outlets that have preyed on that uncertainty, and they prey on that uncertainty by coding it in racist terms, by coding it in misogynist terms. And I'm going to name one person here, and I was name, you know, from the late 80s when talk radio grew up in the States and Rush Limbaugh, you know, this obscure Kansas City sports, you know, media person makes a fortune out of talking about feminazis, talking about all And now you've got Breitbart. And I think while recognizing you've got to speak at one level to those people, say we recognize what you're doing, you've got to confront it up at the top end and say, look, in having this dialogue to you, we've got to draw a line on what just is not acceptable here. And I think Charlottesville brought that out in the summer. And, and you know when you do it, people will come back and say, oh, you're attacking our heritage, you're attacking our identity, yada, yada, yada. And, and there I think you still have to stand tall, whatever happens. No, absolutely. I fully concur. Because, I mean, it was part of the, like, the amazing jujitsu that Donald Trump pulled off in a way that like I mean the the appeal to cultural reaction you got to think was pretty straightforward and sincere in the sense that Donald Trump just has a set of attitudes about race and immigration uh, and gender relations that like speak to the primal id of a certain part of the of the country that feels like it's being sneered at by like late night comedians and and, and, and smarty pants academics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like my pants smart. It's the best. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the best kind. Um, but like, the, but to pair that with this sense of being marginalized and having an economic grievance about being left behind by globalization, etc. Like the underappreciated part of Donald Trump's getting the nomination was that he actually campaigned to the left in some important regards of the other Republican candidates. Like he was saying, like you can, we're going to have health care and it's going to be for everybody and it's going to be great. Uh, you know, we're going to have a big infrastructure spending program. It's going to create all these jobs. We're going to like plow government assistance into these failing industries. And yeah, it's going back things. to my point, that I think is why the GOP, in, in part, it might be pleasantly surprised that Trump seems to have abandoned all these. Yeah, because like he just—I mean—they—they they, they kind of stemmed from like basic ignorance. Like he doesn't know anything about any of those issues or what would be required to solve them. So he just said that stuff, like assuming that you know you worry about it tomorrow when you get elected. But then he gets elected and he has a congressional Republican Party coming in with him who like don't believe in any of that. Like they want to—I mean, sure they want to reform health care, by which they mean they want to like 
take away to save money for tax cuts large amounts of the public subsidies that people who do have insurance now are currently getting, let alone do anything to help people who, who, who don't have insurance. And they want to pass a massive uh, tax reform, so-called, which basically amounts to a huge top-end cut paid for, uh, at least in the current iteration, by, by tax rises for, for, for a bunch of different people in the, uh, in, in the middle. And that, like, his ability to run that campaign that particular way, I think, owed a lot to, like, he didn't have any cognitive dissonance about it because the galactic ignorance of his approach to policy meant that he didn't know. Because that assumes cognition. Right, that, that he was, that when he got in, he wasn't going to do all that kind of stuff. So, uh, so the other thing I just I, I want to say that's related to that is that, you know, what this last year has revealed, I think, setting aside Trump, is the kind of bankruptcy of the Republican legislative agenda in that, like, they got in, they tried to pass Obamacare repeal and replace. They failed to do that. They didn't fail because of a filibuster. They couldn't get a majority of their own, a majority out of their own votes. They didn't fail because Trump did anything in particular. They're now failing again on tax cuts, like, for similar reasons, like, within themselves and on their own terms. They're not able to assemble the votes to pass something. And that like, seems to starkly illustrate the problem that they've been campaigning, saying that they're going to deliver one thing, which is a better healthcare system that provides more, more stuff more cheaply while intending to do the opposite, and they're going to pass a tax reform that's going to like, make more people better off. And the underlying reality has never been that, but they've been, like, having come into office, they've suddenly discovered, I guess, that it might be a political problem for them if they pass laws that do the opposite of what they campaign saying those laws would do. And therefore, like, they've lost, a, a critical number of them have lost their nerve at, that, at this precise moment. And I don't think Donald Trump knew any of that. Like, he came in, I think, believing that after eight years of the Republican Party saying, Obamacare is terrible, we're going to repeal it and replace it with something that creates better health care for everybody. That he was they like, have a right, plan. Right, he got, yeah. he got elected and he said, okay, there's the ball. I'm really looking forward to signing this great new health care plan. And then, like, it turned out there wasn't one because all of their plans involved slashing the budget and radically cutting back health care. And, like, I think part of his frustration, because he really was mad at them, like, he was furious at Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell for not passing health care reform. The way he talked about it reflected that he didn't really understand why they weren't passing it. He was like, where is the bill on my desk that will deliver on my promise to do all these, to do all these things? Because, uh, you know, it should be so simple. Why would any fool not do this? And the answer was that disjunction. In an interview, health care is complicated. Who knew? Who knew? Who could have figured that out? So, no surprise. I mean, I I know time is is running on this, but just really quickly, I I think we've got a problem here. It's like, as analysts, we're trained to think in terms of rational terms, analytic terms, you know, and in terms of evaluating policies and so on. Trump from the get-go unsettles that because Trump just says anything, right, off the top of his head. And it's not necessarily, with respect, a left or right issue. It's just a Trump being Trump. You know, He's a classic huckster. You sell the snake oil and you're yeah. in the next town by the time yeah. anyone realizes it doesn't yeah, cure what ails you. But the challenge not only for us trying to read this is it is, is the challenge for politicians who have to compromise, who have to maneuver. And it's like, wait a minute. Everything has just been thrown up in the air. So, for example, remember the classic one a couple months ago? when having failed to basically deport the immigrants, which is what he thought he might do at one point, he turns around to the Democrats and says, hey, I'm going to work with you now, and we're going to get this wonderful Dreamers Act that's going to uh, ratify the stay of all these immigrants. And the Republicans say, wait, what did you just do? And it, it was just like, again, Trump off the top of his head saying, well, I couldn't do it this way, 
maybe we'll do it like this and you know I do everything bigly right even even with my small hands I mean like you would think that like even if even if like someone was plucked off the street and made the president of the United States by the end of a year of doing it just their instinct to sit around a table and get people who know what they're talking about to like tell them what they need to know would lead them to probably know more at this stage than I think Donald Trump probably knows about a lot of the issues on his desk. This is because the thing, it's like the lack of interest yeah. in learning or understanding. I mean, I reckon it's more of an effort to refuse to learn yeah. than to actually sit down with people who know what they're talking about. I mean, at this point, like, how hard, if you're the president of the United mm. States and your own party is trying to pass a health care bill, how hard must you have to work to know, to continue to know as little about health care as Donald Trump does? You've got to resist so many opportunities to learn. I but think if you had the option as president of the United States, ideally you could be surrounded, well, considering the current White House, possibly not by the best and the brightest, but at least some decent... You, you take you take you take a, di- a different moral compass as your as your starting point, I think, and that's and that's the, we take a different mm-hmm. moral compass as our starting point. But if you think about maybe you know a, a previous sort of controversial Republican president, I'm thinking Bush 43. You know, he came in, his cognitive style was such that he, he clearly wasn't very intellectually curious. There was lots of sort of you know, liberal jokes at the time about his, his lack of intellect, etc. But, I mean, whatever about that, I mean, maybe he wasn't that intellectually curious, but he surrounded himself with experts, and, and you know, whatever his policy agenda was, that's sort of beside the point, but the fact that he, he, he was mindful of his own shortcomings. I always did get that impression, and even things like on the campaign trail, he took Condoleezza Rice out of Stanford and asked her to accompany him on the trail, explaining foreign policy to me in words that I can understand. That was the phrase. And he even admitted that to the press. So there was a humility there that now that we look back fondly and go, oh, you know, he was quite self-aware. So if you think of that in comparison to the, you know, the the bringing in the, the, the current Trump administration staff who are many of them very much outsiders or or sort of an odd fit for the job or whatever, and you don't have that sort of institutional knowledge and memory and history and stuff that, you know, that Bush actually, to his credit, did surround himself. Yeah, but but let me me add a vital addition to that, and that is, who is it who tapped the people that sat around that table? So who is it who tapped Michael Flynn to be the national security advisor or tapped Tom Price, the very ultra-conservative Georgia congressman, to be the health secretary, or Betsy DeVos to be... Education Secretary, they were tapped by Trump's inner circle, someone like Jared Kushner, you know, his son-in-law, or Bannon, his chief strategist. So in other words, the reason why you get that apparent shift with what we might call questionable competence is not just because of Trump, but because of that inner circle around him that all of a sudden finds itself basically with this unexpected power on November the 8th. Yeah, what you would call questionable competence, I would call a band of desperados and idiots, I think. going to come to foreign policy in a second, I think. Before we do, let's take a moment to do a quick tour of our numbers of the week, shall we? Uh, this is the round where we take a, take a digit that links to a news story, uh, and we just say a couple of minutes to, uh, about what the story that caught our eye is. Luca, did you bring us a number from, from lovely Wales? Yeah, I found two when you said this last week, but then I realized this morning that those were the numbers of last week and not the number of this week. But luckily, this morning, I was able to come up with another one. According to the Washington Post, and this is my number of the week, 
Donald Trump has made 1,628 misleading statements since he's been in office. And this is... It's a lot of misleading statements. Yes, in 298 days, which means 5.5 misleading statements per day on average. <laughs> which I think is an, uh, it's an amazing... And they say he doesn't work hard. That's like that's I, a hell I, of a rate I, of productivity. This is why I was saying earlier that I think it takes a, a positive effort to kind of be so bad at the job or being so misleading at the yeah, job. Yeah, he must get up some mornings and like, ah, oh, I just like, I want to relax into just saying some banal truths today. I can't be able to find any esoteric deceptions exactly. to engage in. But, but uh, yeah, just... Uh, so, number of the week, 1,628. Cluda. Well, my number of the week is 76. And this is the number of pages, it's a bit obscure, so bear with me, in the Federal District Court ruling in response to Trump's ban on transgender troops in the military. And I chose that because it's something that I have been following uh, myself uh, through the year or, or since, since the summer, really, when it sort of all came to, to bear. And it, for me, has been a fascinating story because it's a key example of Trump's effort to create policy via Twitter. So I don't know if you might have noticed last July, but he tweets in July about transgender Americans in the military. Just it's not practical. It's too expensive. We can't, he said, uh, they, they could not afford the tremendous medical costs and disruption of transgender troops. So we start with a tweet by, in July. By August, it's a presidential memorandum. And by September, there's a whole load of lawsuits coming in terms of this is a constitutional violation, blah, blah, blah. And the other day, the, the D.C., District Court put out a 76-page really, really strongly worded rebuttal to Trump's efforts, and I thought that was really interesting. That I mean, I won't read out all the bits, but very, very strongly saying this is, you know, your, your efforts are not sustainable, and there is nothing unconstitutional about transgender troops serving in the military. So it was just batted right back at him. So his efforts at policy by Twitter have, for now, because it's only temporary, for now, been shelved. So that's where I came with 76. We can always hope that his Twitter account keeps getting suspended by people who are leaving <laughs> Twitter. Yeah. Well, you know, we should, it turns yeah. out that the US military is also spending more on Viagra than <laughs> transgender medical costs, whatever they well, are. Well, you've got to have priorities, Luca. Like, uh, you've got to have priorities. It's an essential uh, frontline tool. Cristala. So I'm going to feign left and then go right on my number of the week. Ooh. And my, my left feign I, I, I'm is, in suspense. Yes, you should be. My quick throw to, to U.S. politics is going to be 46, I hope that's right, which is 46th president mm -hmm. of the U.S., possibly being George Clooney. The Guardian, the Guardian came out with an article, I think it was today, I hope it was today, suggesting that Clooney's career is going so badly that perhaps he would also be... Um, and it's going so badly and also he is, you know, the right ideological candidate with the right amount of money and all of that to put himself up for the next Democratic candidate. Well, if he can beat elections. off Oprah Winfrey in it's the true, family, it's true. which I and believe I have to you were speculating say, on before. I have on to the say. <laughs> yeah, it's dream team. So that's my, um, that's my faint. And then going right, I want to go over to Australia, if I may please. If you must. Because my number of the week for People Australia is eight. The Come on, let me, let me, let me harken back to Australia for like two minutes. My number of the week from Australia is eight. And that is the number of Australian members of Parliament who have had to resign over dual citizenship. 
Australia has a fantastic law that's about 114 years old that says that dual citizens can't be members of parliament. And when this first became an issue, it was an issue because a member of parliament who was a Greens candidate had to immediately resign because he was had New Zealand nationality. And so the government, which is headed by the Adams term, illiberal liberal yeah, the party. The illiberal liberal party. <laughs> they call them centre-right. I would call them much harder right scoffed and made a lot of a lot of public merriment about the fact that a green candidate had to a green member of a green senator had to um leave and how dare he and he was a traitor to the cause and a spy and all of this and then they discovered that actually they had several members of parliament who also had to uh, resign but they didn't of course resign they took it to the high court and with the result is that the one member um, majority that the government had has been lost on the back of the Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce. That's and such a good name, my favourite part of the whole not story. Only, not only Joyce. is Barnaby Joyce's name a cause for celebration, but if you remember Barnaby Joyce, there was a controversy in 2015 because Barnaby Joyce kicked uh, Johnny Depp and... Uh, Amber, what's heard. heard their dogs out of the country because they brought them in illegally as a bio and and this is a biohazard to mm. Australia. So he got into a public tussle with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. He is now no longer Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. He is crazy. And so there may be like a double dissolution election coming up in Australia, which makes me so, so happy. So my number of the week is eight or 46, depending on how you swing. So, sh- so sh- should I take it then that you attribute his downfall politically to, to the Johnny karmic Depp? justice of like yes. having delivered Johnny Depp into the arms of alcoholism and decline as a result of this like the, the, this dog-related despair abuse. incident? I just hope that Barnaby Joyce is not re-elected in, his, in the upcoming by-election on the 2nd of December. That's a mighty name all the same. Scott, what have you got? Oh, well, let's bring it back home. With the number 39, uh, I preface this by saying two things. One is is that uh, I am a native of the fine city of Huntsville, Alabama, and uh, secondly, that I'm the son of a preacher. So I take great interest in the fact that when polled this past week, 39% of evangelicals, and there are a lot of evangelicals in Alabama, said that they would be more likely to vote for Republican nominee Roy Moore, after hearing the claims that he had a penchant for dating, in quotes, women as young as 14, 39% more likely to vote for him. Now, this does not mean that 61% of evangelicals are less likely to vote for Roy Moore. It could be they said, I don't know, or what are you talking about, or get away from my door, you damn atheist. I raise this because it raises interesting questions that many of these evangelicals, who I will have heard from, hello family, for decades about the immorality in American life and about, especially about the immorality of Bill Clinton and the immorality of Hillary Clinton, now suddenly have found a different moral compass when it comes to dating very young women in shopping malls and I am not making this up, outside a child custody hearing in Gadsden, Alabama. So 
this question that we had or this way that we easily had to divide America in terms of, well, you have a moral majority in quotes and they will go this way on issues is completely reconfigured <laughs> when it comes down to the way that morality is flexible in these very, very strange political times. I don't actually think Roy Moore will actually wind up being able to uh, take his seat in the Senate, even if he uh, wins the election. But that will be due more to the establishment GOP Republicans who think that a line has been recrossed than necessarily to my evangelical brethren and sisters in uh, the heart of Dixie. Uh, my uh, my number of the week uh, is pretty closely related, in fact, uh, is one courtesy of producer Connor, uh, research assistance on this one, um, is 127, which at least as of a week ago is the number of uh, times the phrase fake news has been mentioned in tweets by the President of the United States uh, over the course of the last year, which I think is pretty closely related in the sense that like when uh, whatever it is 29 39% of evangelicals in Alabama say that they would be more inclined to vote for Roy Moore after finding out that he like gropes 14 year old girls um, i don't think they mean that like this is the this is the pederast candidate they've been waiting for all their lives and now they get the chance to vote for him i think what they mean is probably like roy moore is the victim of a terrible liberal media conspiracy to lie him out of this role that's coming his way uh, and therefore i want to support him even more just to smite him which like says a lot i suppose about the like the culture of information that's been created in a lot of parts of American society because like this is a really thoroughly reported story. Like it is like very, very difficult if you take any normal epistemic standard of how facts are established seriously to doubt for a moment that what Roy Moore is accused of is true. But by just uh, you know, demagoguing effectively about how you are a victim of lies and conspiracy and fake news. Um, there is a very large constituency now of people who just will not even engage with the question of whether or not um, stories that reflect badly on either Donald Trump or Trumpian candidates are factually accurate because their starting position is that most of the normal sources we would go to for some kind of standard of factual accuracy in reporting just can't be trusted. And they, they are, you know, from the first moment of hearing about the accusations already long gone from, uh, from, from, from uh, the space in which they might be convinced. What I found fascinating with, with the, the Trump fake news issue is that his position is that the mainstream media is fake news. So not that sometimes they'll tell a story that's not true. It's like the whole premise of where they're coming from, whether you're CNN or the New York Times or whatever. It's all fake. Mm -hmm. And then when you have that starting point, you're guy in Alabama or the, the Billy Bush tapes or whatever, everything can just be spawned, even if there's hard evidence to, to kind of back up the, the reality. So, yeah, it is it's truly post-truth now. Yeah, which I mean, is going back to what Cristela said earlier, I think Donald Trump doesn't see a reason to change the way it's doing things. Like he made a political career out of the famous fact that Obama was born in Kenya mm. and about the birth certificate and so on. So he has proof even in his short political career that lying and lying to everybody's face actually does work so why change the tone or and like you're referring back to the bush administration but like all previous administrations it's become interesting how quaint it is to look back on how much work politicians used to do to mm. avoid just directly lying like they would they would like 
have a bunch of facts that really counted against them, and they'd want to mislead people by presenting the issues a certain way. So they would bend over backwards to get the facts they, that were true, that kind of supported their position, to obscure the facts that didn't support it, to construct a kind of um, you know, rhetorical and uh, advocacy-oriented house of cards that if you didn't blow on it might make you reach a certain conclusion. And, you know, that was partly a reflection of the fact they didn't want to just outrightly say stone-cold untrue things, whereas Donald Trump will just blow through and go yeah. up, is uh, up is down, black is white. And that, you know, I suppose it's, it's just revealed how much wasted time used to go into, like, trying to construct just about true but misleading things but when you could just lie. Case. It's not a quantitative change. I think it's a qualitative one. We've not moved from an administration that lied, say, 5% of the time into one that lies, I don't know, 50% of the time. We've moved into one that, on purpose, blurs the distinction between what is true and what is false and sends out false statements or lies, pretending that they're true and vice versa. Mm. I wonder, in terms of, of this, uh, these comments about the media, I wonder how much actually... Donald Trump has done to, to really erode trust in the media over the term of his presidency or whether there was the people in your home state who wholeheartedly dismissed, say, CNN or whatever from the outset as maybe not fake news but didn't listen to them in the first place. You know, I wonder whether it's a change of substance and has done some significant damage to mainstream media outlets across the country or whether that existed and he and he just has pushed it a little bit further. I would say that it, it existed, but the, the, the thing that's different now is social media because, like, Scott talked about Rush Limbaugh earlier and the yeah. rise of talk radio and that, and you have, like, going back decades, that whole uh, anti-Clinton uh, kind of conservative movement in the 90s that, that came out of, you know, Arkansas and other places, that was just about pre-internet it was very talk radio then the internet kind of came of age during the clinton era and you had you know his scandal wouldn't have broke if it hadn't been for the drudge report so it was a kind of an internet-based scandal so it's building and building and building and certainly you're getting divergence in what people think would be like a credible source or whatever but i think trump and maybe more widely social media have taken that just to sort of stratospheric levels because you could now live your entire life via getting your news from social media and never actually buying a newspaper or turning into, you know, sort of the evening news or whatever. So it can all just come from your phone and it can be bots. It could be anything, you know, so we have kind of the, the, the tethers are, are now gone, I would say. I think the New York Times has had some data on it and I think it's largely along ideological divides. So Democrats who trusted mainstream media before tend to trust it in the same way or even more, and Republicans that did not trust mainstream media now trust them even less, mm -hmm. but in not a, like, there, is, there doesn't seem to be a great effect of Trump campaign against mainstream media. I'm conscious we haven't talked too much about the wider world and foreign policy since we got started with this. One of the reasons people find Donald Trump scariest is because his temperament seems so like poorly fitted to having nuclear weapons at your disposal. Uh, like a guy who flies into wild rages based upon misconceptions about things uh, or like irritating items on cable TV uh, and who also seems to be at least as ignorant about geopolitics of the world as he is about domestic policy issues like the prospect that he might just get us all killed was one of the things that stressed people out about him taking over we're not all dead yet 
but how do we feel about the like one minute to midnight quality of of a Trump presidency? Well, we're discussing this earlier, and in a sense, if we're all here in five years and we all have survived, that would be already a positive story coming out of the Trump presidency. I think. Yeah, the bar is like on the yeah. floor. Like it's basically, if you can just like lift your foot, you can get over this bar. But going back to the first question as to what has surprised me, I think something that has surprised me has been the speed with which other countries, both traditional U.S. allies and let's call them rivals, have taken notice of the fact that in the United States there is this gigantic leadership and power vacuum. So they can do either whatever they always wanted to do, but they would not because the United States was not in favor, or as are starting to build up to a greater international leadership role that might eventually substitute for that of the United States. And I'm thinking really at two main countries here. One is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia seems to have been doing whatever they want after having pretty much received a blank check from Donald Trump at that famous meeting in which they look like three evil masterminds with their hands on a... The orb. The orb. The orb orb of light. Saudi Arabia has been stepping up its military activities. For some reason, the Lebanese prime minister has showed up in Saudi Arabia, and it is unclear whether he was under threats, whether he resigned, did not resign. Yeah, I mean, like basically, the, 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 yeah, like Saudi Arabia yeah. fired the prime minister of, <laughs> of, Lebanon, of another Lebanon, country. Lebanon, what, yeah. what basically what it looks like. They called him in for his performance review, and they told yeah. him, "Sorry, I'm afraid but, I mean, you have to leave." I think the more concerning development overall is. China's increasingly prominent role in areas that have been traditionally considered those of the United States, for example, on environment and climate change. China is clearly positioning itself as the new leading power on this, taking advantage of the fact that the United States has largely withdrawn on electric cars, on emissions, and so on. China has established a whole set of new institutions that sometimes run parallel to the Western established one, but also China is taking, and this came up in a recent episode of the Ezra Klein show, China is taking a more prominent role in already established institutions like the IMF, Interpol, and so on, in which the United States has largely lost interest, mostly due to the fact that the president is not driving foreign policy and the president has little to no understanding of foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And the Secretary of State has been very effective in completely making the State Department ineffective and cutting Mm. diplomacy in favor of other means, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like when people say the State Department is absent, they they often mean that it's just not doing what you would expect. But in, in this, this administration, it's literally the case that absent. like they just don't, like people are not occupied. Like, there are jobs vacant left, right, and I center. I mean, being Italian, I always I've always been skeptical of this idea that good businessmen make good politicians. We've got 20 years <laughs> of experience of that. But mm-hmm. I think Tillerson is another example in which you, good businessmen don't necessarily make good yeah. politicians or in this case, good diplomats, I think. Yeah, well, a bit like healthcare, you know, is complicated. Who knew? It's like government is different from running a company. Who, yeah. like, who, who, who would knew? it ever have occurred to you? That might be the case. Cloda? A couple of things. And actually, uh, this is maybe a little bit more positive that there's you know the, the glimmer of hope that we were speaking about recently and um, there's a couple of things first of all I'm thinking of the Paris climate agreement and the fact that tr- Trump has taken the United States very very uh, much out of that now but there are some 
goings on a bit sort of slightly further down the, the power structure, I suppose, if you like. And that is things like individual states, like California and others, um, and individual corporations signing up to the Paris criteria under their own steam. So I guess there's a bit of a good news story or potential story there in terms of, okay, the message coming out of the Oval Office is we're not interested hello, coal industry, or whatever, but others are determined to kind of keep that Paris-style agenda moving forward. And there's also talk of, for example, if Trump didn't get back in in 2020, and of course, who, who knows, this is pure conjecture, but it takes so long to get out of a complex international agreement, stop, you're shocked, but, you know, as with Brexit, you don't do these things overnight. So it might even be that if there was no more Trump post-2020, that the, the sort of the gap between where the United States is now and where it will be on Paris could be actually filled. And the other thing, and this is so not my area of expertise in any way, but the idea of the Iran deal con continuing to move forward, even without America overtly on board, because it's a sort of a bigger package, if you like. So there's two things, I think, where it seems like all is not lost, and that's... Better than, <laughs> better than all being lost. Is it like stumbling it. forward? Is it moving forward? I'm looking at Scott because it's, it's his... The Iran deal? Yeah. Uh, uh, the Iran deal itself, uh, it is a combination of Trump's own advisors saying, if you want to confront Iran in the region, you don't walk out of the deal because then they'll just simply return to their nuclear program with the potential for a nuclear military program and you'll isolate yourself. It's a combination of that and the other signatories, including Britain, France, and Germany, continuing to say, no, the deal's a very good thing. So that's been the limit there. Um, there's a wider question, though, so maybe I'll get to that, which is actually the Iran deal is, is sort of a starting point for much bigger regional power play, including the Saudis. And I guess to take on the big question, uh, at a general level, I'm really happy in the fact of this idea that there are a group of people, even if most of them happen to be retired generals, who is like, stay away from the red button, stay away from the red button, stay away from, stay, no, here, here's your phone, go play on Twitter, don't push the button, right? And it's like, okay. And there's that idea of containing Trump, and we can talk about it with respect to North Korea, for example, where it's been really tested. Uh, we can talk about it with respect to the Middle East uh, and the fact that he hasn't, you know, gone all out and trying to confront Iran so far. But... I think what I want to put to all of you is there's a much wider issue, just as there was on the domestic front, and that is that there, the illusion of American leadership, which I think has been a very distracting illusion, that was already starting to go before Trump came into office, um, in part because of the failure in Iraq in 2003, very symbolic failure, but in part just because of a changing nature in the world, you know, China and other powers in Asia, the change in nature of the EU and the way that it's approaching European affairs. You know, the, the always complex Middle East, the U.S. isn't necessarily, quote, leading and is definitely not necessarily in terms of a leadership through its exceptionalism. And I think Obama, for all my criticisms of his policy, especially on Syria, I think Obama and his people got that. And I think they were recalibrating in terms of how you work with all these different groups to get power. Trump clearly doesn't, you know, make America great again. I can just walk away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership or I can walk away as he wants, you know, in NATO. NATO's obsolete. He doesn't get that. He actually at that. And some of his advisors don't get it. Bannon doesn't. 
Steve Miller doesn't get it. The generals might, but they're still hamstrung with this idea of that since 1945, America could reorder the world or put it all back together. So even if Trump goes, and I think he'll be gone within a year, to repeat the provocative assessment, you have this bigger problem, which is compounded by a lack of capacity in the State Department, which is, guys, the rules of the game have changed. They have really changed big time. And whatever takes over, whether it's the Pence administration or the Democrats, they're going to have to relearn that. And that's that's a pretty big ask. I mean, I mean, I think this is... I don't know how much of a surprise I'd characterize this as, but just, okay, he came into office off the back of a long-standing Republican critique, admittedly, but portrayed by him in vivid terms, that the problem with Barack Obama was that he was basically weak and a pushover, and that he just let other countries walk all over him and disrespect him and disrespect America. And what America needed was like a big, tough guy who's going to go out there and crack heads, and then people will know that the boss is back in town and they'll have to do whatever they say. And what's been, like, become apparent in the less than a year that he's been in office is that if Donald Trump is coming to town and you like put a red carpet on the floor and put some nice ornaments on the mantelpiece. And, and you sing to him. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, whatever yeah. it is, everyone's got their own thing. Some people have got the orb. Some people have got, like, a military fly past. Give him a nice dinner. But it's, I mean, it's literally as simple as stand next to him at a press conference and go, Donald Trump is a big man, and I am very impressed by his size and his brains. He is smart and big. I am very much more pleased to be America's friend now that Donald Trump is president, not like that bad Barack Obama. And he sits there and smiles and then comes out and says, this is great. I think you can see we've really reset our relationship with insert country here. And then whatever like crazy nonsense they wanted to do that Barack Obama was like disinclined to approve of because it cut against American interest, suddenly, at least as far as the president's concerned, unless his advisors can, the way it's all fine. So Saudi Arabia can like, like have a coup that installs a new third something supreme leader and launch a holy war within Islam across the region or like China can basically as good as announce a manifesto for global hegemony and he's like all smiles about this because they were nice to him when he I mean, came this to visit is the thing. It's, it's, and that's the absurd thing it's at such odds with the talk of what he was supposed to be about and just how childlike and how 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 almost trivially easy it is to play him as a, as a leader once he gets out there because he doesn't know enough and he doesn't have enough emotional maturity to handle that, that, that role. But this is the thing. It's, so, it's not all leaders. It's certain type of leaders, and in particular the authoritarian type is Saudi Arabia, is the Philippines, is Putin, is China, is very critical of Europe mm-hmm. and NATO and other U.S. allies, but it simply has this fascination with authoritarian leaders perhaps because they're particularly good at putting on these amazing mm. shows and so on. I think they find it easier to be nice to him though because like if Donald Trump is coming to like Europe to hang out like part of the challenge that their leaders have in European countries is that like he's the president of the United States it's really important so they need to like 
they need to have him in and like do all the usual stuff and try and be friends. But like their public hate Donald Trump's guts because they think like he's terrible for like all the values they believe in, etc. So like, they don't want to be bear hugging Donald. They don't want to be like filmed by their own media saying Donald Trump is the the best president the United States ever had. I want to be his best friend. Whereas if you are like a strongman dictator who controls all of your local media, then you can say whatever you like uh, because I mean, you don't have the same values to defend and you don't have an electorate in the same way at least to defend bear hugging this uh, you know manifest nincompoop uh, too but i mean this is the thing i think we are in, again in the realm of a qualitative change because the united states has always had relationship with dictators part of the liberal international order was actually supported by some very illiberal people here i think is a change that is a, there is no effort to either justify that we have to deal with these people because they are serving some purposes, but we we know that there are human rights concerns. We know here there is just, they're very good leaders. I mean, he he congratulated the leader of China on on getting a new term in office. Okay. It goes on with the Philippines and with Duterte, and Duterte sings to him for some reason that I still don't understand. And then they all laugh about journalists being all spies and so on. And these are all things that would have been unthinkable and it would have been a very uncomfortable trip for any other U.S. president to go and show that you're best buddy with a foreign authoritarian leader. I mean, but let's just remember one thing to preface this in in terms of where we are in terms of what is unprecedented. And that is from the get go. Donald Trump was compromised by Russia. He was compromised by the extent of the Russian intervention in the 2016 election, and he was compromised, in a sense, by that personal affinity for Putin. And that completely changes everything. You know, everything that we work off of as academics and trying to calculate international choices, that rule book was ripped up even before he stepped into office in January. Yeah, which, again, you have to think, like, stems in a large part from naivety, naivety in the sense that, like, Russia, I would imagine, probably, like, pokes around and tries to wheedle its way into pretty much everything that goes on in American politics. The difference in this case is that because you had this uh, campaign of like D-list uh, people who wouldn't get jobs in, in like the tea room of any normal campaign, uh, people you know who are looking for prestige, looking for jobs, looking for money, have none of the normal avenues, and led by someone so galactically inattentive and inexperienced, they were able to like run yards into this thing so that whether or not anyone planned it from the start, like after the fact, they were, as you say, wholly compromised, and that can't be fessed up to. That's where I slightly disagree with you, and I slightly disagree with you, and we'll wait to see what comes out through the special counsel's investigation, but let me just remember three things. First of all, June 2016, his son and his son-in-law and his campaign manager are meeting with three Kremlin-linked envoys to discuss, including the removal of U.S. sanctions on Russia uh, and the provision of material which is damaging Hillary Clinton. December 2016, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is meeting the head of a Russian state bank to talk about probably hundreds of millions of dollars, whether it's a loan to Kushner's own enterprise or to Trump Enterprises. I suspect he knows about that. I can't think he's in the dark there. And let's then remember that his future national security advisor, Michael Flynn, is talking to the, nation- is talking to the Russian ambassador five times on the day that Obama announces sanctions, additional sanctions on Russia. I got to think, even as dim as we portray him or disconnected, Trump's got to know that's going down. So this is before he's inaugurated. So this isn't just simply the fly-by-night guys like the Papadopoulos, right? These are the highest-level people who will then become his closest advisors, 
who are working with Moscow. Can I say to your fake news, Scott? I mean, <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. was simply discussing adoption policy with Russia. <laughs> yeah. The subject in the email said dirt on Clinton, but the real conversation <laughs> then <laughs> was code yeah. for adoption. So, yeah. so I mean, I, I want to wrap up this, this main part of the podcast then by asking, like, what, what happens next? Like, what, how do we think this story ends? We give brief answers to that. But I'll go first, because it comes directly after that, I guess. I worry that the position that we are going to get to is, um, like, I was listening to the National Review podcast, the sort of right-of-center conservative American magazine the other day, and they were talking about how the bar for collusion with Russia um, keeps getting lowered, as they see it. So stuff keeps getting, like, brought in that they don't think really counts as demonstration of collusion and alleged to be proof of it. I think it's exactly the other way around. I think that we keep getting clear and un- and undisputed evidence of things that a year ago would have been regarded as like situation critical information and it keeps becoming get- getting integrated and metabolized as well that's just like the way things are the smoking gun still hasn't come the smoking gun still hasn't come i worry that we're going to get to the point with this where basically there will be evidence that donald trump sat in a room where someone said like we have this offer from the russians about this dirt on hillary clinton from these hacked emails uh, i'm going to go and have a meeting with them is that okay and he like said yeah and basically his defense against that will be i am sufficiently like inattentive and like inexperienced like some mixture of dumb and cognitively declining that my being in a room and being asked about something explicitly and saying yeah that's okay is insufficient to regard me as culpable and responsible for it and like he's basically going to like indirectly plead total incapacity as the as the basis for not being held responsible think, given how he sold his capacities to get the job is remarkable I think he's going to plead I was on Twitter at the time <laughs> and it's going to be the Twitter defi- defense yeah yeah. So, so yeah. So I think like the more likely thing is like he's certainly not going to get impeached. I don't think until there has been a midterm election that gives Congress back to the Democrats. And by the time you get that far, you got to think the Democrats will start wondering. Well, maybe it's not so much in our interest to get rid of this heinously unpopular president. Now we already control Congress. Let's just like leave him there. Hope he doesn't nuke North Korea. And uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll win in in twenty twenty. I don't know. Although it's still important that if he did this stuff, we document it, so the investigation is valuable in that regard. So I, I, I'm, in, I'm increasingly inclined to think, like, unless he dies, he serves four years, and then you know mm-hmm. something happens in the election. What do, what do you guys think? I tend to agree. I mean, John Oliver has the very famous line that all this Russia thing is stupid Watergate, <laughs> because it's the same problems and cover up as Watergate, but done by incre- incredibly stupid people. <laughs> I think this is more a stupid Iran-Contra, which was already fairly stupid in itself. But the way in which it turned out was largely that the bad stuff had been done by some guy, Oliver North, whereas the president was largely unaware of what his advisors were doing and so on. And I think this is the one of the likely scenarios for Trump in which he will be, even if something big comes out. And as I mentioned plenty of times, I have an enormous amount of problems, and I get frustrated about this wait for a smoking gun because we had so many smoking guns since the campaign that we can probably fill a cabinet with smoking guns, but we're still waiting for a smoking gun. But even if something big comes out... It's like a billowing arsenal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Even if something big comes out, I think Trump will be allowed mostly using the defense of his stupidities, lashing, competent 
incompetence slash lack of awareness that he was not aware of what was going on and he might be gently told not to run for a second term and that would be <laughs> yeah, I'd like to be in that room <laughs> I think in terms of sort of projections going forward I would say I don't think it's an impossibility I know I know Scott has his he's out in a year I heard him put five pounds in it the other day, so you've heard this now, it's been recorded. I don't think it's impossible that there could be a second Trump term by any stretch of the imagination, and I think the reason for that is Thank that... Thank you. Wow. We've got, yeah, a, we've got, a, we've got a wide the, spectrum. You know, <laughs> negative note. But uh, genuinely, I mean, if you think of the amount of the popular vote that he got, it was, you know, a, a, a minority amount of a relatively small turnout, but those people have pretty much stayed with him. It was 46%, whatever it was, that he got um, last November. His approval ratings are about 40%-ish, give or take, depending on where you go. Um, let's just say that he continues to do his thing of doubling down on keeping those people happy. And remember, it's pretty tribal. You know, it's, you know, anything that goes wrong or anything that he doesn't get into place. You can blame fake news. You can blame China. You can blame the Democrats. You can blame, you know, blame everyone. Harry, Immigrants, you know, choose choose your your your, um, your your source for the blame. But you know, if he keeps this base happy and he galvanizes them and he is good at campaigning and it doesn't matter about what you think of his policies, you know, he is a very effective communicator. That whole "Make America Great Again," you know, what was Hillary's message? Not sure. Whatever it was, it was a bit fuzzy. You know, he was the one who was the master of Twitter. He got was it estimated two billion dollars worth of free airtime from the liberal media, having hysteria every time he opened his mouth. They played a large part in in keeping the whole Trump story going. And I, another thing that I think is very uh, TBC, if you like, is the fact that you know the one thing that conservatives love is the fact that he got Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. Uh, almost one of the first things that he did. So there's a there's a uh, classically conservative Supreme Court justice on there now for decades. Gorsuch is young, he's healthy, he's fit, you're not going anywhere soon. We think he's healthy. I was just saying to Luca before we came on that the dark, uh, it was a dark thought, but you know, what an ironic end it would be if Neil Gorsuch went under a bus on the same day as the 2020 election or something like that. The conservative Republican Party's mortgaged its credibility for these whole four years to get that one thing and then it, well, there's all that, banking on this guy staying on there for years. Anthony Kennedy and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, both of whom are, you know, uh, yeah. not spring chicken. Buses may not be say. required in those cases, so yeah. it could be. I mean, think of it. Three Supreme Court nominations made by this administration. It is not beyond the bounds in any way. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because she's had cancer twice. She's 80-something. I mean, she's obviously made of steel, and she's amazing. But she'll have to stop at some point. So will Kennedy. So, I mean, it could be everyone sitting around, you know, wondering about what next. M maybe Trump might only last one term, but if he gets three... Um, Justice is on the court. It's kind of a game over for any sort of progressive agenda. So, yeah, that's my glimmer of hope just snuffed out there. Quick yeah. note, there was a debate when Hillary Clinton came to visit Swansea if Hillary Clinton had stolen her slogan from the national Welsh football team or vice versa because one was stronger together and the other one was together stronger. So it's yeah. unclear who stole what from whom. Interesting. But, yeah. yeah, it doesn't go so well on a hat. Unfortunately, Cristala. You know, I walked into this room 
less depressed than I'm going to walk out of this room because I did not consider a second uh, Trump term. Not even in my wildest, most depressed imagination did I consider the possibility of a second term. Really, Adam, Adam's brow has furrowed for people who are not in the room. Didn't think about it. What I was, what I was afraid of, and I, and I said it on the first um, podcast we did after the election, was a Pence presidency and that continues to be my fear because he's not incompetent <coughs> and because he is ideological and that terrifies me and so now I'm going to walk out of the room not sure what I'm more afraid of <laughs> <laughs> well, let me cheer you up uh, can't believe you said you're going to cheer that was optimistic Clodagh. that's the least optimistic thing I've ever heard no uh, I think she was saying that she was snuffing out her own earlier created rays of hope yeah that oh, was okay. kind of you've birthed and then murdered her okay, it's one thing to hang on politically with the minority who support you it's another thing to defy a very rigorous uh, uh, investigative and legal process and here's the reason why I think he's gone within a year I think they've got They've already got some of his top advisors. Manafort's been indicted. Uh, I think Flynn is probably going to be close to being under indictment. I think they can get Jared Kushner for their contacts with the Russians. You know, and Kushner's son-in-law. That's getting pretty close to the president. Secondly, I wouldn't say this is established yet, but I would project that they're going to be able to get a Russian financial trail, if not directly into the campaign, that there was Russian money that went into the states around the election and that Trump's people knew about it. Uh, keep your eyes on the Bank of Cyprus, by the way, through that, where that uh, money went through. My and great country. There you go. Yeah. We've lose got bank. to survive somehow. Yeah, Come banking. on, we're post-conflict. Yeah, loose banking regulations is no excuse, though, to survive. Yeah. All the time I've known you, Cristal, I haven't met the Russian ambassador once. <laughs> just not, you're not leveraging your nationality I'm nearly well enough. I'm quiet, Adam. I know which You don't remember. She didn't meet him, but nobody <laughs> that's, right. that's, that's true. Uh, maybe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and his the niece. Most, <laughs> yes. but, the, but the third element beyond Cyprus is they've got it. I think they're going to get him banged to rights and obstruction of justice. Uh, over the firing of James Comey, and I think also over things such as uh, dictating the memo in June that was a lie, effectively, about the June 2016 Trump Tower memo. So I think they got him. It just takes time for that to happen, whether it's before or after the 2018 midterms is a political question alongside of that. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Uh, please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the pod. And share us on social media. Tell people that we're out there looking at some lovely people's faces right now. It makes me think about how many other faces we might acquire uh, in the world who could, who could be listening to us. If only you would suggest us to them uh, through social media. You can uh, come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash slash poll worldview, where you can see articles and links and post your own comments, etc. Um, I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me, if you're so inclined, on Facebook. Uh, I'm pictured next to Lyndon Johnson uh, in black and white, pretty easy to discern. Adam Quinn 161, if you want to know. I'm also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, but I don't spend a lot of time there. Um, Twitter's for journalists and bots. Um, I'm, on, uh, I'm on Facebook. Find me there. Our participants today have been Scott. Where can people find you on social media? Well, I'm hanging out with the bots on Scott Lucas underscore EA on Twitter. I am at the news analysis website eaworldview.com. And since last week, I'm involved, as are many of us, with the new project, the Trump Project, at trumpproject.org. Kristala, 
Yes, you can find me on Twitter, um, also with the bots, at at Yakinthu. And I'll spell it for our special for our special panel day. Got to spell that name. Yep, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. See you there. Luca, do you have social media presence? That people yes, might I do. Be, you can uh, find me on Twitter follow? and at Luca Trenta. And also a project I'm running on everything action and intelligence related at, at Out of the Shadows Project. And last but very much not least, where can online bounty hunters find your gems? Um, I'm with Scott and the bots on Twitter. Um, it's, so it's at DMU Clodagh, that's C-L-O-D-A-G-H. Uh, I'm also uh, part of the Trump project that uh, Scott just mentioned, which is a, a, an exciting um, entity that's just kind of taken legs. And Adam is also involved. Um, and yeah, what's your problem, Luca? Why aren't you part of the Trump project? <laughs> Nobody asked. Yet. We're a growing entity. And I guess the one other thing that's worth a mention, as I'm here, I have a microphone and a captive audience, um, the American Politics Group, and our website is AmericanPoliticsGroup.net, um, that's an entity. It's free for uh, students, and it's a nominal fee for, for academics, and it's just a, a sort of a hub for uh, British, European, and other Americanists for events, publications, all of that kind of thing. So um, do check that out if you are so inclined. Awesome. Our producer is Connor McKenna. Uh, he's done sterling work to get this live show on the road, considerably more sterling work than is ordinarily required. Thanks to him. We've been sponsored by the Alumni Impact Fund of the University of Birmingham in having our guests here today uh, and, in, and in doing the, the live episode itself. You've been listening to us from the Pulses Department of the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too.